Mark 12, verses 13 through 17, the word of God says this, And they send unto him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians to catch him in his words. And when they were come, they say unto him, Master, we know that thou art true, and carest for no man, for thou regardest not the person of men, but teachest the way of God and truth. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Shall we give or shall we not give? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said unto them, Why tempt ye me? Bring me a penny, that I may see it. And they brought it. And he saith unto him, Whose is this image and superscription? And they said unto him, Caesar's. And Jesus answering said unto them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Lord, we thank you for this service thus far, and I pray, Lord, that, um, Lord, as we now turn our attention to this passage, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand what you're trying to communicate in this passage. Help me, Lord, to articulate as well and to, uh, Lord, have freedom of speech and and clarity of thought as I uh, go through this message. Lord, I pray that we would all be good hearers, but more than that, help us to be good doers of what we hear. Help us, Lord, to apply the truth to our individual lives. Well, thank you for all that goes on in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, as you know, we are nearing the end of summer. And as a result, that means we are slowly creeping up to the holiday season. In fact, we are just 88 days from Thanksgiving and 119 days until Christmas. And uh, as you go to some of the stores, Hobby Lobby, yes, I'm speaking to you, they are very well aware of this fact. And with the holiday season comes family gatherings where we get together with aunts and uncles, cousins, the in-laws, probably the outlaws, and various other family members. And usually in most family gatherings, there is an anxiety that someone will create drama and debate over two specific topics. And these are typically off limits in order to keep the peace at these family gatherings. What are the subjects? Politics and religion. And so today we're going to talk politics and religion. You're welcome. If you came today hoping for a nice message on God's love, uh, well, that is not a bad topic, uh, but today we're going to talk politics and religion. See, today in our text, Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, addresses both of these topics head on. And just like in some family gatherings, when these topics come up, it created quite a scene and a big controversy. Now, for the record, it wasn't Jesus who brought it up in the first place, but he also didn't shy away from it either when it did come up, and he addressed it head on. And so today, I want to dive into this uh, brief passage of Scripture and talk politics and religion, and hopefully uh, nobody gets up and says, hey, uh, I don't agree with that, and, and we don't have any controversy or create a scene this morning. Uh, in here, but uh, I think we would do well to look into this passage and understand what God has to say 
about politics and about religion. And so let's notice, first of all, today as we consider this passage, uh, let's look first at the conspiracy against Christ. In verse number 13, it says, And they send unto him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians to catch him in his words. So here we go again. You're saying, wait a minute, it seems like every message there is some type of conspiracy going on. Yes, because as Jesus makes his way to the cross, he's dealing with uh, a growing number of uh, religious leaders and government officials who were very much insecure about who this Jesus Christ is. And so they want to take him down and remove him completely from the scene. And they try wave after wave uh, of these attempts to try to take him down with his words. And all of them, of course, were unsuccessful, but they kept coming. As we consider this conspiracy, let's notice a few aspects of this attack. First, let's look at the people of this conspiracy. In verse number 13, it identifies who these people are. It says, And they send unto him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians to catch him in his words. Now, in the previous conspiracy that you may remember from our previous messages in, verse, in chapters 11 and 12, uh, we saw the scribes and the chief priests who were uh, very upset about Jesus coming into the temple and, and cleansing the temple and overturning the tables, if you remember that. They were so upset that they actually recruited the elders to join them in one of the first conspiracies uh, to take him out in his words. And so uh, they joined together, the scribes, the chief priests, and the elders. Remember, they formed the, what was called the Sanhedrin. And uh, when they got to Jesus, they asked the Lord about where he got his authority. And uh, then Jesus brought in a question. He said, I have a question of my own for you. Uh, the baptism of John, was it of men or was it of heaven? And it, he ended up silencing them in that question, but then proceeded to indict them on failing to receive the prophets and ultimately the Son of God in the first part of chapter number 12. Well, now uh, they kind of go their way, and uh, verse number 12 of chapter 12 says, They sought to lay hold on him, but feared the people, for they uh, knew that he had spoken the parable against them, and they left him, and they went their way. And the Bible says in verse 13, and they send unto him. So this group of Sanhedrin gets shut down, gets uh, totally, uh, totally indicted, and, and uh, Jesus has a very pointed story for them. And so they go away, and they, they, they talk to these Pharisees and these Herodians, and they said, hey, why don't you go and try to trip Jesus up in his words? And so they uh, send a totally different group of people to attempt to take the Lord with a question that they thought for sure would trap him. So they send this very unlikely uh, group of people, the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, it's not su surprising to find the Pharisees involved in this coordinated attack. We know that they were extremely conservative in their religious practices. They held strictly to the law and additional practices believed to be required for acceptance to God. They were legalists in the full sense of the word. They condemned any who failed to share their commitment to these practices and beliefs. And most Pharisees were very self-righteous and prideful and boastful and kind of looked down their nose at everyone else. Well, it's interesting to discover the group that they chose to cooperate with during this particular assault. 
The Herodians were a political faction of Jews who were loyal to King Herod, enjoying the benefits associated with the Roman occupation. Herod supported the Roman occupation and sought to advance the influence of Roman culture within Jerusalem. And normally these two groups were at odds with each other, choosing to avoid any association that wasn't absolutely necessary. Their values and goals were polar opposites, and yet they had joined together in opposition to Christ. While they despised each other, their hatred for Jesus served as the unifying factor in their cooperation. Now, sadly, an attitude remains like that today, doesn't it? Particular groups that usually have nothing to do with each other sometimes come together to oppose the gospel and its advancement. And so here we see the, the people, the uh, Pharisees and the Herodians who come together, this, this next wave against the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and I can, I don't know, this is, I, I'm using my imagination in this scenario, and that's kind of dangerous, but uh, in, my, in my imagination, I kind of see them gathered around, the Sanhedrin come back with their tail between their legs, you know, Jesus just kind of nailed them. And they go back and we got, we got to figure this out. We got to take this guy down. The Pharisees and the Herodians are like, hey, let me at him. And we've got the perfect question. We, we know exactly what to bring up. And, and he, no matter how he answers, we're going to trip him up in his words. words and it's going to be perfect. And so uh, these, these people get sent. And, and, and an unlikely couple here, these Pharisees and Herodians, they did not get along, but they got along when it came to taking down the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and uh, as I brought this up a few messages ago, there's going to be another conspiracy way down in the future, at least a thousand and seven years from now, where Satan is loosed from heaven or from from uh, from hell and his time in prison, and he's going to deceive the nations, and they're going to form this huge conspiracy, and he's going to gather this amount of people that is, uh, the Bible says, is as the sand of the sea. And they're going to come against the Lord Jesus and the people of God to try to overthrow. And uh, it's going to be pretty organized. And people from all different walks of life, all different backgrounds, are going to form this unit to try to take down the Lord Jesus Christ. So this isn't the first time this happens. or it, it, It's certainly not going to be the last time that this happens in the future. So we see the people. But then let's notice here the purpose. In verse number 13... They send unto him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians. And what was their purpose? To catch him in his words. They went fishing, right? Um, I like fishing. I like to go fishing, and I don't like to just go and cast the line in the water and not catch anything. I want to catch something. Now, I understand the old adage, the worst day out fishing is better than the best day at work. <laughs> and I'm for that truth. Uh, but here they wanted to catch someone. They wanted to catch the Lord Jesus Christ. And where were they going to use uh, this question as bait? And uh, he was going to bite on it is what they thought. So Mark makes it abundantly clear that the purpose of these men was to catch Jesus in his word. They had no desire to learn from the Lord Jesus. By the way, you think about this. The Herodians and the Pharisees, whoever their representatives were, who went to talk to the Lord Jesus Christ, they had the opportunity to talk with the Son of God, face to face. Can you imagine having that opportunity? I mean, you know, if we were to say, like, who's your favorite celebrity? We'll, we'll take the Lord out of it for a second. 
and just say, okay, if there was like a sports person that you'd like to talk to, who would it be? Uh, maybe some of it would say LeBron James. Not me. Um, I probably would say I wouldn't mind having, having uh, dinner with uh, the Raiders quarterback, Derek Carr. He's a believer. Also a very wonderful quarterback as well. But I'd, I'd like to have that opportunity. Some, some may say, well, I'd like to, it'd be, it'd be pretty special, right, to go to the White House and, and sit across uh, the Resolute desk and talk with the President of the United States. Boy, we all like to have that opportunity, wouldn't we? <laughs> Number one, we'd give them the gospel. And then we'd say, what are you doing? <laughs> no, okay. I didn't mean to go there. I didn't mean to go there. But we are talking politics and religion today, aren't we? I did warn you with the title. But, but here, these, these people, perhaps this was their only opportunity to talk with the Savior and their purpose was to catch him in his words. Like they had an opportunity to, to hug him, to sit at his feet and worship him. Because one day they're going to do that. They had an opportunity to do that right there. But what they did was they were trying to catch him in his words. People, by the way, even still have the same purpose in their lives, to try to disprove the truth of God's Word, to cast doubt in people's minds, to invent theories of evolution that uh, take a creator out of the equation so that we would doubt the rest of the Bible. And there's still people who are trying to discredit the Lord Jesus Christ. And discredit what he did and, and the plan of salvation and the importance of redemption. He's trying, there are people who are still out there trying to do that. And we see that even here in American culture. We're removing the truth of gender. And by the way, it is a truth that there are two genders. It's not like, okay, there's 112 plus and we're adding more each day. No, 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 no. There's two. And we see this attack on truth so that there's no accountability and we can live however we want. The purpose of this conspiracy was to catch Jesus and his words. But then I want us to see here as we continue in verse number 14, the phoniness. Verse number 14, when they were come, they say unto him, Master, we know that thou art true. And there was no doubt a little sarcasm in their voice. There certainly wasn't any sincerity at all in it. We know that thou art true and cares for no man. And we might think, well, yes, he does care for men. But uh, what they were insinuating was he doesn't care what people think. He does what God has sent him to do. That's what they were trying to say. It was meant to be a compliment. And cares for no man, for thou regardest not the person of men, but teachest the way of God and truth. And so they come with these, these flowery words, this, they put it on thick. They were just really trying to butter up the Savior. So they come with this phoniness, this fakeness. They were Academy Award winning in their act. And they were just trying to set them up. So they come with this phoniness. But then they drop the bomb at the end of verse number 14 after they go and flatter him, you know. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? 
And I imagine they kind of were like leaning in as they said, shall we give? Or shall we not give? See, in this question, in this conspiracy, no Jews particularly enjoyed living under Gentile rule. The Pharisees hated it with a passion, and so they wanted to know what Jesus was going to say. Whereas the Herodians adopted a more tolerant view. And so if Jesus, as he was asked this, this question from these, these phony um, hypocrites here, if Jesus openly endorsed paying tribute to Caesar, he would alienate many of the Jews, and they would uh, have an uproar against Jesus. But if he spoke against Caesar... These Herodians would hustle them to the Roman authorities for arrest and trial as a traitor. So they thought they had him in a corner, and no matter how he responded, they would catch him in his words. And they thought, okay, the Sanhedrin kind of failed, but we're not going to because we have the perfect question. We're going to trip him in, up in his words. And so we see this conspiracy against Christ, but as we continue on through this passage, we see next the composure of Christ. You see, as Jesus deals with this new wave of attack and from a different group of people, he doesn't run away from it. He doesn't flinch or cower. He doesn't get angry. Instead, he maintains perfect composure and stands up and deals with it head on. By the way, as we continue on through the rest of this book, as we get closer and closer to the Christ or to the cross, we're going to see uh, some more difficult times that Jesus is going to in encounter. And yet, in all of them, he 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 has perfect composure through it all. He doesn't start worrying and fretting and panicking and going, "Oh no, they're going to kill me." He knew within his sovereignty that it was going to happen. So here's kind of the point for all of us in this thought here. If the Lord doesn't panic or fret or worry when things get bad, why should we? Especially those of us who are believers, who have the Lord in our lives, who, by the way, is called the Prince of Peace. And yet some Christians are far from peaceful. They're worrying and panicking about all the things going on around them, and, oh boy, things are getting bad. It's never been this bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Things got pretty difficult for Christ, and yet he maintained his composure. He wasn't worried or fretting. He wasn't afraid. I want to encourage all of us to, as we look at the news, and as we see some things coming down the pike, and, and maybe even for us as believers, some religious liberty that may be gone at going off the tubes, for us to not panic, for us instead to maintain composure, knowing that God is in control. So we see the composure of Christ. How do we see that? Well, we see that, first of all, in his omniscience. This is a theological 50-cent word that basically means God knows it all. In Psalm 44, in verse number 21, the Bible says, shall not, the, shall not God search this out? For he knoweth the secrets of the heart. And we see this here in this passage uh, in verse number 15. Shall we give or shall we not give? But he, knowing their hypocrisy. They came to him with all these flowery words, and, and I suppose most would have been impressed and, and, and kind of, it would have maybe been effective. 
but not in the Lord Jesus Christ because he knew their hypocrisy. We see this in his omniscience. Job 42 and verse 2, the Word of God says, I know that thou canst do everything and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Every thought that you and I have ever had and ever will have, whether it comes to light here on this earth or not, the Lord knows and nothing, no thought can be withholden from Him. See, Jesus knew their hypocrisy. And by the way, He also knows my hypocrisy. And He also knows your hypocrisy too. We might be fooling everybody in the room today. We might be fooling our spouse. We might be fooling our family. We might be fooling our coworkers. But we can't fool God. Hebrews 4 and 13 says this, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. All things are open and naked unto him. You say, oh, no, I'm hiding all of it, and I've deleted all my history, and I've, uh, I've deleted those text messages, and, and no one knows. No, all things are opened and naked unto the eyes with, of whom we, with whom we have to do. David said in Psalm 139, he said, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my downsitting and my uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassed my path and my lying down, and I acquainted with all my ways. In other words, uh, the Lord knows exactly what time you laid down to bed last night. He knows everything. He knows every time you wake up, and He knows our uprising. He knows our downsitting. He understands our thought afar off. He says He's acquainted with all of our ways, for there's not a word in my tongue, but, O Lord, Thou knowest it altogether. It's not a word that you'll speak in this life that God doesn't take notice of and doesn't know it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before, David said, and laid thine hand upon me. And, and David said, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high and I cannot attain unto it. And David realized the amount that God knows about us. It said, it blows my mind. And he does. He knows everything about us every feeling we've ever had, every emotion that we've felt, every pleasure that we've experienced, every heartache, every time of pain that we've gone through. He knows it all. And He also knows our actions and our attitudes and our motives. He knows it all. You see, as these Pharisees and Herodians stood there speaking to the Lord of glory with all their flowery words, trying to butter Him up before they dropped their bomb on Him, Jesus saw right through it. There was no mistaking what they were trying to do. And he's able to see all through our flowery words and our nice garb. He's able to see past the veneer and know exactly what's going on in our hearts. See, man seeth not as the Lord seeth. Man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord. See, he looks at the heart. So he knows what's really going on inside. And you say, well, I know what's going on inside. In fact, the Bible says we can't really fully know what's going on on the inside because our heart is desperately wicked and, and, and deceitful, and, and we can't know it. The Lord does. So as these guys come, Jesus maintains complete composure. Why? Because of his omniscience. It's good for us to be reminded that he does know what's going on in our life. Then we see his object lesson. 
So instead of running away, fearing for his life, worrying about how he's going to respond, and and I know for me, I would be like, hey, I like to take time to think about it and pray about it and and, uh, write it all out so that I know what I'm going to say. Jesus knew exactly what to say right there on the spot. And so in verse number 15, But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said unto them, Why tempt ye me? I'm sure that was kind of a piercing question for them. Like, how did you know? We, we rehearsed our, our little spiel. And we were so sincere in it. I mean, we really worked at this. I can imagine they're like, okay, what are we going to say when we see him? Okay, Master, we know that thou art true. Cares for no man. That regards not the person of men, but teaches the way of God and truth. Oh, he's going to love that. And so they practice it and practice it and try to say it with as much genuine and sincerity as they can muster. But he says, why tempt ye me? They were like, how did he know? Well, then he goes into his object lesson in verse 15. Bring me a penny that I may see it. They're kind of like, what in the world? Bring me a penny. Well, verse 16, they brought it. Now, it's interesting to note here that he did not have a penny for himself. He couldn't just reach into his pocket and say, here, let me show you a penny. This is showing and insinuating that Jesus was poor here on this earth. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, he was rich, but yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. So Jesus comes to this, earth, to this earth. He was born in Bethlehem's manger, a very obscure place to be born, uh, not even in a nice hospital uh, room. He was born in a manger with animals. Probably wasn't very fancy, probably a little cave, and not even a real nice stable that a lot of us kind of picture in the Christmas time. See, through his poverty ye might be rich. Remember what Jesus said of himself as he lived his life? In Luke 9, 58, he said, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Jesus didn't even have a home to call himself, so he was the homeless Son of God. Because he wasn't looking really to reside in a physical home. He was looking to reside in the home of each of our hearts. But then he asks them in verse number 16. So they bring this, this coin, and, and this coin had an image and a superscription on it. And I think we have a picture of one of those coins that could have probably been from that era. And this coin, he says, whose is this image and superscription? And they, the Pharisees and the Herodians, said unto him, it's Caesar. That was Caesar's picture. And it had probably those, those characters on the coin probably said something about, that, about Caesar's kingdom and Caesar's rule. Which, by the way, as they answered that question, it was an, actually an indictment against them. The fact that there was Jews here who were under the authority of a pagan king was a testimony that they had forsaken the Lord and now were under a heathen ruler. And so this had to be a little convicting for Jesus to say, can you please tell me who this image and superscription is? uh, And they said, Caesar. When it should have been the Lord all along. 
but instead they forsook the Lord. And so when they responded with Caesar, um, that was an indictment against them. Verse number 17, Jesus continues here and, and uh, his, continues the point of the object lesson. And this leads to number three here as we uh, wrap this up, the command of Christ. So we see the composure of Christ as he deals with this wave of conspiracy, this next wave of conspiracy. But, but then he, it leads to some commands here. Verse number 17, Jesus answering and said to them, Render to Caesar then the things that are Caesar's. And to God, the things that are God's. So the command of Christ here is twofold. He mentions that here that each of us has at least two responsibilities, and there's other responsibilities that we have in this life, but there's two that he mentions in this passage, and two that I want to uh, deal with and dive into a little bit uh, as we wrap this up this morning. First of all, we have a responsibility to government. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Hey, if you're going to allow yourselves to be under government, which you wanted way back in, in the book of 1 Samuel, well, we want to have a king. We want to be like everybody else. Okay, well, it's going to cost you. You're going to have to pay, you're going to have to pay taxes. It's going, to, it's going to cost you some people who have to work in the government then. So if that's what you really want, they, we, that's what we really want. We want to be just like everybody else. Okay, well, then don't complain when the tax time comes. And so we do have a responsibility to government. And, and, and here are the Jews, okay, you didn't, want, you didn't want to be a theocracy. Now you're under a Roman rule, and now you have to deal with that. And so render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. I'm going to ask you to kind of hold your place here in Mark 12, but let's flip back very quickly to, or flip over to Romans 13. Because Paul continued on this thought and gave us a little more information on what the responsibility of the government looks like. What does it mean to be responsible to government? I mean, I know here in America, we're the land of the free and the home of the brave. You better not tell me what to do because I live in liberty and freedom. But we understand that that's not because we live in America and we have freedom doesn't mean that we are, have zero laws and zero rules. Uh, there are some things that we are underneath that we have a responsibility to, as God's people, to obey, whether we like them or not. Romans 13, verse number 1, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. And so here we go. Verse number 5 says there, Wherefore ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. Look, obey the laws. Submit to the laws of the land. Well, I don't really agree with that law. Obey it anyway. Submit. There's nowhere in here it says submit. Let every soul be subject to the higher powers 
as long as you agree with them. No, it's whether you agree with them or not. Submit to the laws of the land. And I know there's a lot of them that I don't agree with or don't like to obey, but we need to. We need to do it according to verse number 5, not only for wrath's sake, but also for conscience sake, so that we have a right relationship with the Lord. In other words, this is a matter of obedience to God, rather than just a matter of obedience to the law. It's also a matter of obedience to God. So submit to the laws. Another reference you can write down, we won't take the time to turn there, but 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, also reference this as well. So in case you think it's just a Jesus and a Paul thing, it's also Peter. Um, all three of them talk about the importance of our responsibility to government. Okay, submit to the laws. Secondly, nobody's favorite, but pay taxes. Unless you're an IRS agent, you're like, that is my favorite. <laughs> Let's keep reading here in Romans 13, verse number 6. For this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers. You're like, okay, I understand, Pastor, you're one of God's ministers, but Kamala Harris, really? Hey, the powers that be are ordained of God. We may not agree with the powers that be, but God has allowed them to be in that position. You say, why and how? I don't, plan, I don't claim to understand all of it. But God knows what He's doing, and I trust Him. Pay taxes, okay? For this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Pay your taxes. I realize that this past, I think, Wednesday, our president signed a bill for giving student loans that's going to cost billion, this, this country billions of dollars. And so that's going to impact our taxes. I didn't celebrate that particular event. My wife and I didn't go and have a party and go out and eat and have a special dinner to celebrate this momentous occasion. No, because we know that it's going to impact our taxes. Nobody likes to pay taxes. I was reading about a man on vacation who was strolling along outside his hotel in Acapulco. Enjoying the sunny Mexican weather, suddenly he was attracted by the screams of a woman, woman kneeling in front of a child. This man knew enough Spanish to determine that the child had actually swallowed a coin. So seizing the child by the heels, this man who was on vacation held him up, gave him a few shakes, and an American quarter dropped to the sidewalk. Oh, thank you, sir, cried the woman. You seem to know just how to get it out of him. Are you a doctor? No, ma'am. Replied the man, I'm with the United States Internal Revenue Service. <laughs> and then there's this oldie but goodie. And if you're an IRS agent in here today or listening online, I still love you in the Lord. But uh, how, about this? how about this one? What's the difference between an IRS agent and a mosquito? One is a blood-sucking parasite and the other is an insect. So there you go. Uh, look, taxes are not fun to pay. No one enjoys tax season. I mean, you know, some people get refunds and all that, but don't you know that the government actually was holding on to your money beforehand, and they were making interest off it instead of you? Anyway, that's a different topic. 
Taxes are no fun to, pl- to pay, but it's part of it. It's part of living underneath government. Pay what is owed to Caesar or Uncle Sam in our case. Nothing less and nothing more. Pay taxes. And I know we don't necessarily always enjoy doing it, but we need to. Number three, what's our responsibility to government? Pray for our leaders. This one cannot be missed. If you complain with the direction of our nation and aren't praying for our leaders, I hate to break it to you, but you are part of the problem. Oh, it's easy to complain and bemoan what's going on, but if we're not taking time on our knees to bring our leaders before the throne of grace, we're part of the problem. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 4 I don't think I'm going to go through the whole passage here, but he says, I exhort, therefore, first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. And then he describes which men we are to be praying for in particular, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and honesty. We need to be reminded this morning that we are not in a battle against the left or the right, or against a political party or a politician, a movement, the LGBTQ plus community. We're not in a battle against Planned Parenthood or any other organization. We are in a spiritual war. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, Paul said, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So, as a result of that, we cannot fight this war with worldly means. We must fight this war, not with swords, not with weapons, but on our knees, right? So our responsibility to our government is to spend time praying for our leaders. Are we doing that? Proverbs 21, verse 1, I love this promise. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And as the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. So let's be much in prayer for these leaders, for their salvation, for wisdom, that they would make decisions that would protect life and religious liberty here in America. And so can I encourage you, for those who like to post your politically charged posts on social media, I would encourage you to first spend time and energy praying for our leaders, because I guarantee that will accomplish a lot more than any social media post. But then after you pray, then post away. (laughs) Number four, last one here on this, vote according to biblical principles. Proverbs 29, 2, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice, but when the wicked beareth rule, the people mourn. Don't buy into the mentality that your vote doesn't matter. I've read an article that describes several elections all over the world throughout history that were decided by just one vote. See, the privilege and responsibility of being an American citizen is that we have a voice. And as a believer, this is a very powerful way to let your voice be heard. I realize there are a lot of, there's a host of issues, and most, most of the time when choosing to vote is a choice of the lesser of two evils, but when it comes to biblical principles of the protection of the unborn and traditional marriage and biblical morality, these are non-negotiables. So vote according to biblical principles. So we have a responsibility to government. But here in verse number 17, if we flip back to Mark chapter 12, lastly here we learn that we have a responsibility also to God. 
See, a lot of times we focus in on the first part of this command, but miss this last one. And I, I don't want to take a lot of time here today, but I don't want to miss this one. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. See, the Jews there under Roman rule actually did pretty good with rendering the things to Caesar. Oh, they didn't like it. They weren't fans of it. They wanted to be rescued out of it. That's what they were hoping Jesus would do is to be their Messiah and set up the kingdom and, and give them freedom from these uh, mean Roman, Romans. But they were faithful in rendering the things to Caesar. You see, their particular failure was in this responsibility to God. And I would say that most of us here today are pretty good at obeying the law, paying our taxes. You being here today is proof of that, because if you weren't good at it, you'd probably be behind bars somewhere. The question is, have we been rendering to the Lord the things that are His? That leads, leads to this question, what then should I render to the Lord? What are His? Well, to answer that question simply, everything is His. He owns it all. The Bible says in Psalm 24 and verse 1, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell therein. If you're dwelling in this world, you belong to the Lord. He owns everything. We sang my favorite hymn this morning, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. The last stanza says, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. But love, so amazing, so divine, it demands my soul, my life, and my all. And this includes our time. This includes our talents, our treasure. All belongs to Him. By the way, our body and our spirit are also owned by the Lord if you're a believer. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Know ye not that your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and you're not your own? For you bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. So are we giving him our body? And we are, are we giving him our spirit? They belong to him. Oh, the wonderful hymn that most of us know and love, Jesus paid it all. Some to him I owe. Are those the right words to the song? No, but the way we live says that those are the lyrics to the song. Jesus paid it all, so I'll give him Sunday morning, and that's it. Jesus paid it all, so, you know, I'll read my Bible once a week. Jesus paid it all, so I'm really glad I got a ticket to heaven, but as far as me serving him, as far as me walking with him on a daily basis, well, that's a different story. See, we're thankful for us, for him giving us a ticket to heaven, but we struggle to give him our time, our talent, treasure, our entertainment, our wardrobe, our affection. Jesus paid it all, and really, all to him we owe. Now, not, we can't pay it back. He doesn't want us to try to pay it back. But there should be a sense of love and devotion for the one who loved us so much. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.15, and that he died for all. That they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. There's a man named C.T. Studd. 
You can go ahead and throw the picture up, brother. That's, that's quite a name. And uh, you know what? He was kind of a stud. Um, he was a very wealthy individual. His dad was very wealthy, and when his dad died, C.T. Studd got a, quite an inheritance. But C.T. Studd also was very involved in cricket. Now, none of us here in America really follow cricket. Okay, maybe, maybe most people here in America don't follow cricket. But, but where C.T. grew up, cricket was the NBA or the NFL of that era. And uh, C.T. Studd was very good at cricket, so much so that he became a household name, very much like a Michael Jordan or a LeBron James or a Tom Brady or somebody like that, where everybody kind of, oh yeah, I've heard that name before. Everybody knew C.T. Studd because he was a true stud when it came to cricket. I mean, he was a celebrity, and, and so very powerful, very influential, very wealthy. Do you know what? After some time, he realized that all of it was of naught. It was of no value, and so he actually gave away his vast wealth and became a missionary and impacted quite a bit of the world for the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what his life's motto was? Here's what his life's motto was. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. He basically said, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. I'm going to stop living for myself. I'm going to stop trying to pad my wallet, my bank account, and get more followers and more likes and instead dedicate my time and my life to making Jesus Christ known to the world around me. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. We're all pretty good at that, but are we good at rendering to God the things that are God's? This morning, I think we can learn a little bit from this passage that teaches us a little bit about politics and religion. And when I say religion, I'm more referring to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Religion has done a lot of terrible things in world history. Having a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is what's necessary for eternal life. The end of verse 17, the Bible simply says this, and they marveled at him. Once he came up with this answer, this object lesson, and gave these commands, they were blown away. They were like, yeah, we have no response to that. Well, verse number 18, just a little sneak peek into next week. Then come unto him the Sadducees. So another wave against the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this time today to look into this passage. And there's so many lessons for us to learn. But certainly, Lord, we understand our responsibility to government. Help us, Lord, to, to be good citizens of America. You've placed us here. You've given us instruction in your word regarding our responsibility to government. Help us, Lord, to fulfill those, and to do it for conscience' sake, as unto you. Lord, also, I pray that you'd help us to render the things that, to you, the things that belong to you. And Lord, I think some of us are pretty careful at making sure we don't pay Uncle Sam too much. 
Sometimes we make sure we don't pay you too much as well. Help us, Lord, to instead have a heart like C.T. Studd said, no sacrifice is too great for me to make for him. After I consider the sacrifice that you made for us, I should be willing to give you my all. I should be willing for you to take, let you take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Father, I pray that if there's one here today that has never trusted Christ as their Savior and doesn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I pray that today would be the greatest day of their life. May they place their faith in Christ and Christ alone for their salvation.